0: Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, would you find Exodus chapter 5 with me? Exodus chapter 5. For those of you who are guests, I know you've already been welcome. I trust you've been encouraged. That's the second time I got to enjoy that worship set. I always sit in my back room early in the morning and listen to them warm up, and it warms my soul. To sing the truth of God's Word, and now I have the opportunity to preach the truth. Of God's Word we're walking through the book of Exodus verse by verse we began a few weeks ago we find ourselves in chapter 5 most of the time we take about a chapter a week and the first few chapters of the book of Exodus are really about God raising up and sending a man to save his people now I've been teaching you and showing you that this man of course is none other than Moses, but he is so much more than just Moses of antiquity. He is a foreshadow of a greater Moses who God would send to redeem his people who were in bondage of sin, and of course, that is the Lord Jesus. And as we study this book, I've been teaching it each week, there's a reason why we're on this journey. We embark on this journey as a group of people because we are them. We are the people of God. And so whenever we have a story involving the people of God, we can learn more faithfully how to be the people of God from seeing the ups and downs, the failures, and the strengths of the people of God before us. We're also living in the same world they lived in. I know that a lot has changed since the ancient world, but two things have not. The world's broken, and God is good. And those two things are still true today, so it does us good to watch that the people in these stories of the scripture, these true accounts of great acts of courage and terrible acts of disobedience, we find ourselves in these pages. We serve their God. God has not changed. In fact, Moses is dead and has been dead for many, many years, as have every person who is in the book of Exodus, save one. The Lord God still lives. So we learn from him, and then finally, their story is our scripture, and we are to love their Savior. We know the Bible is full of examples of God coming through. Now, before I dive in, let me tell you why this matters. We use language in Christianity like any other group, organization, any other religious body. We tend to use metaphors. I'll give you one metaphor that I've heard all my life. We typically pray, Lord, would you open the door in this situation? We use the door analogy a lot. We talk about going through open doors. In fact, when I talk to young people about their life, once they kind of make it into adulthood, they begin to really think seriously about some big questions. What do I want to do? What do I want to study? Where do I want to live? Who will I marry? Will we have a family? How many children will we have? What what church should I join? Should I invest my money here or should I invest my money there? Should I take this new job or this new opportunity? And it doesn't make any difference how old you are, but usually in our early 20s, we're facing all those decisions. And if you're not in your early 20s, You remember those times when you were facing all those decisions. And one of the things that I use is a simple little analogy. I I don't know that it's original. I've never heard anybody else, but I've learned a long time ago, I don't really have that many original ideas. So if somebody else said this, give them the credit, that'll be fine. But whenever a young person comes to me and they're dealing with discerning the will of God, one of the mistakes they make, because we all make it, is they want to know the total picture. Lord, just show me every step of the journey before I go out on faith. And if you'll tell me how it all is going to end, then I'll go. We know that's not how the Lord works. In fact, David even said, Thy word is a lamp unto my what? My feet. You know why? Because God's more concerned with me doing this, not this. Just take the next step. Do the next right thing. Honor God in the moment. And so I'll use the analogy of facing a decision as if I've just stepped into a room. And across the room, in the opposite wall, there's six or eight doors. And every door's open. I could go to this college. I could marry that girl. I could live here. I could choose that career. And all those doors are open. And I begin to wonder, which door do you want me to go through, Lord? And I always encourage young people, stop looking at all the doors and take the next step. And as you get closer to the decision, which in the analogy is the opposite wall, certain doors will close and the door will be open that you are to step through when you get there. And guess what happens when you step through that open door? You step into another room and across the room in the opposite wall are all the doors you could go through. And it helps people take the pressure of making decisions they don't yet need to make. God is more concerned with your time with Him in prayer in the morning than your long-term venture. He's more concerned with how you treat your waitress or waiter at lunch than He is about your 20-year vacation goals. He cares more about your Christ-likeness today than He does you having to worry about discerning the future of our nation or the outcome of your children's lives. It's not that we shouldn't be concerned about those things, but faithfulness today matters. But what happens when we just know, we just know we're supposed to go in that direction and the door slams in our face. If you've ever lived any experiences in life, you've lived this one. You've been approaching an opportunity. You're excited. You even believe it's God's will and bam, the door shuts right in your face. I just woke that guy up right up there. He just spilled his coffee. Just slams right in your face. And you're right back on your heels, and you're looking, metaphorically speaking, at the wood of a slammed door. How do you deal with the door slams of life? That's chapter 5. Now, we know that Moses has been called from a life of living in the wilderness in an area called Midian with the Midianites to go back to Egypt as a Jew, Moses was a Jew, to tell Pharaoh that God has heard the cries of his people and he is to lead them out of 400 years of bondage and slavery. And so we have familiarity with the story. The first part of the story begins with Moses miraculously being saved as a baby and raised in the home of Pharaoh. He then avenges the abuse of his people by killing an Egyptian. His life is threatened. He runs into the wilderness at age 40 and doesn't receive the burning bush call until he's 80. He then has a decision to make. Do I go back and obey God's will? That's chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. And chapter 4 ends, you have your Bible open in chapter 5, whether you have a printed copy, as I encourage you to bring, or an app. Uh, with a, with, uh, that you're looking at. In chapter 4, it ends with these words. Look at verse 30 and verse 31. Aaron spoke all the words of the Lord, had spoken to Moses, and did the signs in the sight of the people. Now listen to verse 31. This is a high point. I would have loved to have been a part of this. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads, and they worshiped him. Now, can you imagine? You're in the wilderness. You receive this call. You're struggling with it. We talked about that last week, chapter 4. God, I can't speak clearly. Someone Send somebody else. They won't believe me. You finally go. And the first time you step out on faith, it just works. I mean, you do your thing. Aaron does his thing. The signs work. The people are enamored. And all of a sudden, a spontaneous Worship service breaks out. I imagine in that moment, Moses was ready to charge hell with a water pistol. He was fired up. His spiritual chest was out. His shoulders were back. His forward lean and his gaze into God's will was strong. This is a man walking in the fullness of a confidence of a great God. But I got news for you. He about to hit a slam door. It happens in chapter 5. And chapter 5 is really a case study in the door slams of our lives. Look what happens in verse 1. Afterward, so the worship service has ended. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. They even wrote a song about that. I sang it in youth group. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, oh, let my people go. I just found 17 other people who sang that song. It was a really odd time in the late 80s, early 90s in youth groups, but we made it. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. I do love Pharaoh's honesty there. I do love that. I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go to door slam. Bam! And what you find is that the first part of understanding this is just harsh or hard refusal. It's like, I'm not interested in even talking. I don't have questions. We're not going to meet for coffee. No. And everything that Moses had been told to do to a screeching halt. And and moreover, it's not that Pharaoh said, get out of here. Look what happens beginning in verse 3. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go. Notice the first one is, Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. Then they go, please, please let me go. You, You ever deal with that? your children yeah no no matter how you ask no it is the most important word in parenting no no in fact you just say no a lot no 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 the journey into the wilderness that they may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword so notice that they say to Pharaoh through Moses's ministry if you don't let us do this We're going to be under the judgment of God. Now, the irony there is that everything they said that could come true in their life actually does come true in Pharaoh's life. And then the Bible says these words in verse 4. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. So that's a no, a real hard no, and then a you need to go. Go back to doing what you're doing. Get out of my presence. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. Now, now, I want to show you something here. None of this is a surprise to God. There is no door slammed in your life that surprises God. Exactly all of them surprise me. When I'm convinced of God's will and I'm, I'm believing that he's in this and I'm obeying him and I've received clear affirmation, I'm charging forward, I am always surprised when the door slams because I am prone to remember chapter 3, verse 18, but forget chapter 3, verse 19. Now, if you weren't with us a few weeks ago, that's okay. But in chapter 3, verse 18, God is giving him a call. And he says, Moses, they will listen to your voice, and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go three days into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. That's exactly what they do here. They do verbatim. Moses repeats this verse verbatim. They did exactly the will of God. So they remembered to do the will of God. But what they did remember is verse 19 of chapter 3, which says, But I know. So God says, I'm telling you to do my will, but here's what I know. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. I joked with you about this a few weeks ago. It's very difficult to hear a call from God when God says, I want you to do this, and initially you will not be successful why why do I share that with you it's not because it's profound then again it might be listen I believe one of the enemy's greatest tools is doubt and discouragement Satan does not have to allow you to fall into some sick salacious sin to get you out of God's will He simply has to beat you down with doubt and discouragement. I think one of his greatest tools is isolation. If he can pull you away and make you a slave to your own doubt and your own discouragement, he has you exactly where he wants you, which is to be an ineffective child of God. Satan cannot rob you of your salvation. Once you are born again, that cannot ever be taken away from you. You are gripped doubly by the grace of God. But he absolutely will continue to attack your walk with the Lord. And one of his greatest tools is doubt and discouragement. And let me tell you where doubt and discouragement love to live at the threshold of a slam door where you have been convinced of God. Not on some emotional whim. You're not in a pipe dream. You believe that you are doing the will of God and the doors keep slamming in your face. Relationships don't improve. Job opportunities don't open. Rebellious children don't come back immediately to the faith. People don't forgive or they don't accept your forgiveness. And and as those pile up in your life, It's important to remember that God gives us two calls to walk with him. Call number one, come unto me. I love you. I'll give you joy and peace and hope and salvation. Call number two, it's going to be hard. It will be difficult. In fact, you will come up against many doors that will be slammed in your face. And it's not enough sometimes to experience the loss of an opportunity. It's when you actually step out on faith and you experience not just rejection, but opposition. People begin to work against you. This is where we see the second phase of this story. The idea of the harsh repercussions of trying to do the will of God. Look what happens in verse 6. The same day. The same day, we begin to take the story from Pharaoh's perspective. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen. You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. Now watch verse 8. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it. And here's why. This is what Pharaoh has become convinced of. For they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on them that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Now this is tough, tough language. This is what Pharaoh does. Pharaoh's sitting there already concerned that the Jews have outnumbered the Egyptians. If you've joined me today, I'll remind, or I'll tell you, if you're in this series with me, I'll remind you. Way back in chapter 1, the whole reason Moses had to be placed in the basket and hidden from the Egyptians is that the Pharaoh prior to this Pharaoh, that Pharaoh's already dead, but he set into place the policies had said, the Jews are too many. If they rise up against us, we'll never defeat them. We need to start killing every Jewish boy. Now, that Pharaoh is dead, but the one thing that didn't change was the growth of the Jews and the feelings of resentment by the Egyptians who held them in the bondage of slavery. And so, this Pharaoh says, Who are these people to approach me in the name of some unknown God I've never heard of and tell me they want to leave this country and go into the wilderness. He knew full well that if he let them go, they would not return. No wicked slave owner would ever believe that a slave would return back to his or her chains. Of course, people died in every generation and in many civilizations to try to escape slavery. And many others fought to free people from the bondage and the wickedness of slavery. No human in their right mind would return to it of their own volition. Pharaoh knew this. So even though Moses' request was let us go to the wilderness to have a feast and sacrifice, he knew full well what Moses was asking. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, well, I need them so I can't destroy them. There's two ways to control someone who you determine to be a threat. One is to end their life. The other one is to just break their will. This is how people get trapped in toxic relationships. You ever met someone, usually it's a lady, in, in my experience. I've met some wonderful ladies who've come into our church in toxic relationships, abusive relationships. If you've ever met someone like that, you typically back up and do a little head scratching. and you go, well, here's this lady. She's, she's attractive. She's smart. She's articulate. Why is she putting up with this abuse? And when you peel back the layers, and the people in our counseling ministry could teach you and tell you about this. When you peel back the layers, at some point in toxicity, the person, the abuser, has crushed her confidence, crushed her will, and created within her a false sense that her value is built on being with him. And getting someone out of an abusive and toxic relationship, a relationship that does not honor the Lord, usually involves helping that person to see you have value apart from him, or in some cases, her. You have value in and of yourself. This is why people who practice slavery both today and in antiquity don't want slaves to be educated. They don't want slaves to be addressed as equals. They don't want any enslaved generation to receive liberty. You crush their will. And Pharaoh says, these people must have a little too much energy and a little too much time on their hand. I will just make their burdens greater. I'll break the back of their faith by putting on their shoulders more than they're doing now. Now, the primary expansion of Egypt is through construction. Primarily in an area like that, it is not wood, it is brick brick in antiquity is more similar than you might think to the way we build. You and I are in a community filled with development. There's more earth-moving equipment in Spartanburg County than I've ever seen in my life. And what developers can do to a piece of property is amazing to me. Where you go by one day and there are hills and woods and forests and creeks, and the next day, flat in a massive retention pond or a detention pond. And they have the ability to shape the earth, and then the next thing they do is come in, pack the soil, and prepare it, and they pour the foundation with thousands and thousands and thousands of yards of concrete. Some projects within just a few miles of this church are so large, they build the concrete plant on the site of the project because it's more cost-effective than it is to ship the concrete. But anybody that's ever poured any concrete knows you don't just form and pour concrete. There are hours and hours and hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars of steel within the concrete. It's called rebar. And the reason that it's put in is that concrete, in and of itself, can be manufactured with all kinds of levels of density, but it is brittle. And so it connects, it binds, it hardens to the steel. And the steel within the concrete causes the concrete to uphold the weight of the building. This is why when concrete is not poured correctly or it is not reinforced with rebar, it cracks. In the ancient world, they didn't use rebar, they used straw. Straw would be mixed with clay, and the clay, which would by default be very brittle, would bind to the straw, making the brick hard. The Jews were put in charge of making the bricks, so the materials were provided for them. Now, Pharaoh says, you go get your own rebar. In other words, we're not going to give you any more straw. You go get stubble. The difference between straw and stubble is that straw can be grown and cut. It is long, lean, and clean. Stubble is what's left after an agricultural field has been harvested. When you see a reaper reap, With a reaping, you see them cut the grain. And as they cut the stalks, what's left is just a little bit of stubble sticking up about this tall. In about a month, you'll see that in our area. As summer turns to fall and local farmers begin to harvest and they cut corn and milo for silage, when they combine it, it leaves a stalk about this tall. When straw or other grasses like wheat are cut, the stubble is there. And so, the Jews— We're told you're not getting any straw, and you got to go get the stubble, yet your production cannot fall. In other words, he persecuted them with fear. There's a scene. I would never show it because of the graphicness of the movie. It's not a movie I encourage to show to little ears and little eyes, but the historicity of it matters. And I think it's an important part of human history. It is the example of wickedness we have in our own modern day, but there's a scene in Spielberg's movie called Schindler's List, and it's the main perpetrator of the wicked Nazi regime is Amon or Amon Goth, the, the main character. He confronts a rabbi who's been reduced to making hinges in a fabrication shop for uh, Schindler, and uh, as this uh, Nazi epitome of wickedness walks in he says what are you making and the rabbi removes his hat and he says I'm making hinges he said make one and when he did he pulled out a stopwatch, and he timed the elderly man make the hinges and the elderly man made one hinge with great quickness and presented it there to him with his head down for fear of shame his will being broken as a prisoner of war knowing for well he would probably die and Amon Goth, the main character takes it and says very good but I have a question I timed you, and based on how long it took you to make that hinge, you should have made far more than you have in your box. And he took him out into the courtyard, and he threatened to take his life. His life ultimately was saved by a bullet that didn't go off, a pistol that misfired. But it's the ultimate persecution to break someone's will by filling their life with so much fear that all they're based on is production, production. This is what Pharaoh's after he's not after more bricks he's after broken slaves and, and look what happens beginning in verse 10 so the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people thus says Pharaoh I will not give you straw go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it but your work will not be reduced in the least so the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble or for straw remember They're all looking for stubble now, not straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task and making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, second group of Jews, Now, remember, all this didn't happen in eight hours. Uh, Chapter 5 could have happened over a series of days, weeks, or even months. I mean, it takes a little while to implement policy and to watch the slaves underperform because of the unfair circumstances and then to come back and punish them. And there were Egyptian taskmasters, but under them were Jews who were foremen who were the organizers of the slaves. Slaves are often ranked in responsibility. And so these foremen were held accountable— and they go to Pharaoh. Look what the Bible says, beginning in verse 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw was given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you were idle, you were idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when, they, when he said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. One word of application here. We're not always promised that we'll understand persecution. But you are almost always going to be unsuccessful if you take your sorrows to the persecutor and not the Savior. When Paul is talking about the slave-master relationship in our spiritual life, he says it this way in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, I want to be very sensitive here and recognize, not in any way suggesting that Paul is advocating for the wickedness of slavery. But in the ancient world, about a third of the population in the first century were slaves. So it was very common to see slave-master relationships. Now, there were all kinds of degrees of slavery, and we don't have time this morning to go into all that. But Paul understood something. He said, whomever you're enslaved to, that's your master. So if you're enslaved to sin, guess what sin's going to do? Master over you. But if you're enslaved to the Lord, guess what the Lord's going to do? Save you and redeem you. In fact, Paul's favorite term for himself, is a slave to Christ because he understood that he was enslaved to his sin. You may have a passport today. You may have a driver's license. You may be free. You may say, Pastor, I am no slave. I'm a free citizen of the United States of America. That's true. But until you come to know Christ, you are a slave to sin. You have no choice. None of us do. This is the great message of the gospel that Christ us from the bondage of being enslaved to sin, but not that we run amok. He changes us to his love, and we gladly report for duty. We say, "I am not a man who is masterless. I went from being mastered by sin, which was going to take me to death, to grave, to the hell, to hell, to now being mastered by Christ, who's going to take me to the grave, to life, and then to heaven." I am fulfilling my created. I think it's interesting that the Jews who realized they were in trouble sought Pharaoh, their wicked slave master, and not the Lord. There is nothing in this world that will free you from anything in this world. Only the Lord is where we can go. Now, something happens here. The harsh repercussions are then followed by this very hurtful resentment Look how the chapter ends in verse 20. They met Moses and Aaron. Now, the they there are the Jewish foremen who've been beaten because the quotas are not being met. So, so, this is the first time we see Moses and Aaron since up in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. They've been dismissed from Pharaoh's presence. Pharaoh doesn't address them again, but the Jews do. They met with Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them. And they said, and as they came out from Pharaoh, look at verse 21. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Man, I'll tell you what, that's a pretty tough day. I mean, just think about it. I'm Moses, this is Aaron. We're here to save you. Great, we want to be saved. Let's go. Follow me, boys. Pharaoh, let us go. Pharaoh says, no. And not only no, I'm going to make life so hellacious on you, you'll think twice about ever asking me for anything other than your next breath, your next cup of water, your next piece of bread. And all of a sudden, that big crowd that was behind Moses and Aaron, that was worshiping at the last verse of chapter 4, turn to Moses and Aaron and say, we hope God judges you because before you showed up, we were slaves, but at least we were alive. Now, Pharaoh's going to kill us because of what you have requested. There's two kinds of resentment you're going to encounter in your life. At some point, you're going to fail people. I always tell people, if you, if, if you, if you love me and you, And and you think a lot of me hang around long enough, I'll disappoint you. We fail each other. We're going to make mistakes. And when we fail people, and and our failures cause hurt in them, they they can resent that. And in those situations, it is our biblical responsibility to go to them and say, I I have failed you. I I sinned against you. I said something I shouldn't have. I've done something I shouldn't have done. And and I'd like for you to forgive me. Now, we're not in charge of whether or not they forgive us. We're not in charge of defeating their resentment. And I'll be honest with you, most of that takes time. But over time, that relationship can be reconciled. I know people in my life who have resented me or I have resented them, and that is no longer. We are at peace, and we are brothers and sisters in the Lord. This is what Paul would call the ministry of reconciliation. I can deal with that. Be honest with you, that preach is good but what about when you do the right thing and people resent you? That's a little hard to handle. Can't put a package on that. No sweet Sunday school answer for that. When you do what is right and people can't see the full picture, don't understand, and instead of dealing with the fact that God may be at work, they just turn and resent you. In those moments, if you're honest, you're going to begin to question everything you're doing, which is why I love this book so much. Moses doesn't always get it right, because after the hurtful resentment, we end with this heartfelt regret. This is not a rosy ending. Look what the Bible says happens in verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord. Now, this is the second time the Lord has been addressed. In this conversation the elder said we want God to judge you notice they hadn't turned into atheists they weren't mad at God although they should have been frustrated more with God than Moses because Moses was just obeying God everybody automatically thinks God's on their side they weren't mad at God they were mad at Moses but Moses was just doing what the God they say they loved told him to do and so Moses then turns to the Lord and look what Moses says in verse 22 Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Moses questioned the morality of God. Newsflash, the logical point, God can't do evil. God does not sin. He cannot do sin. There's a lot of people say, well, God can do anything. That's not true. He can't lie. He can't fail. He can't be unfaithful. He cannot sin. Yet Moses forgot this in this moment. Why did you ever send me? So not only does he question the morality of God, he questions the judgment of God. And and then look, for since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Now, it's real easy to get frustrated at Moses. Now, look at it from our perspective. For 400 years, God did not deliver them. God calls Moses and says, I've heard their call. Did Moses go to God? Did Moses light the bush on fire? No, 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 no. God instigated it all. God's moving. God's working. And then God says, when you go, it won't work well at first. So none of this should be a surprise to Moses. But let me tell you what Moses did. He did what I do. He did what you do. When that door slams in our face and people even resent us for trying to do the right thing, listen, we forget our theology. We forget the fact that if God is expected to be patient and slow to anger, so should we. We forget that our timing is not always God's timing. In fact, in most cases, it is not God's timing. And after I see the beautiful perfection of God's timing, I usually end up thanking him that his timing was not my timing. Moses forgot all of this. And he says, why did you even send me? But I will tell you one bright spot at least he's speaking to the Lord. When the door slams in your face, don't give God silence. Give God your sorrow. In other words, if there is a lesson from this chapter, it's that be aware how easy it is for our faith to fold like a wet paper towel in the face of a slammed door. And yet, be reminded, God is big enough for you to praise him on Sunday, and he's big enough for you to weep before him on Monday. You and I know the picture. We know the story. We know what God's going to do here. Remember that when the next door in your life slams. Now, I, I know that sometimes you have to be careful in reducing everything to a list but I'm a sequential guy. At some point in your life, you're going to deal with a slam door. And when you do, I'd like to give you, just as a shepherd, five verbs. You can take a picture of these if you want to, or you can jot them down. The next time you're standing in front of an opportunity you were excited about, a relationship that warms your heart, a chance to grow your business, Something you wanted so badly for your child and then, boom, snuffed away. And that door slammed and you begin to question everything that you believe. Feel, dwell, be, wait, remember. Let me tell you what I mean. Feel it, don't fake it. I got no interest in being around the people of God that always have it together. It's okay to say, I, I'm hurting. I'm filled with sorrow. I, for one, am grateful Moses had enough heartbrokenness to come before the Lord. Because I'll tell you what Moses didn't do. He didn't run back to Midian. He stayed. He stayed. He's going to win. There's going to come an exodus, a leaving. He stayed engaged with God. Feel it. We have a culture that believes Human purpose is to go find the next point of pleasure. Pleasure and joy are so good. But listen, learn to grieve. Learn to set in sorrow. Not sulk, not wallow, but feel it. Register it. Secondly, dwell on what is true. This is when the enemy will attack truth. Has God abandoned Moses? No. Was God surprised that Pharaoh rejected him? No. Did God warn that there would be troubles? Yes. Is God sovereign and in control of all things? Absolutely. My father texted me this morning early, telling me he was praying for me, as he does every Sunday morning. He texts me and my brother, his other less intelligent son, and— And he texts us because we're both preachers. And he says, I know you've been studying this week. Preach today as if it was your last day to preach. And he always says, remember that there's somebody heartbroken in your congregation. Don't forget them. But this morning his text was, six years ago today, mama died. My grandmother passed away on a Sunday morning six years ago. And immediately I thought, what a life. And then I thought, six years in heaven. And then I just thought about how my fa- grandfather grieved over losing this incredibly godly woman who had an eighth grade education, never spoke in front of anybody. We can't find a picture where she looked at the camera. She was so humble and meek. But she served and loved and nurtured and cared, and from her home and her heart grew great men and women of God. That's what matters. God doesn't have to solve your problem. He doesn't have to. Dwell on what He's already done, and then be with godly people. When a door slams, you typically are a little bit embarrassed. You're a little ashamed. What did I do wrong? You tend to dwell on everybody else's doors that seem to be open. Everything they touch turns to gold. Don't push away from people. Be with godly people in your disappointment. Forth, wait on the Lord. Sometimes he wants you to stand there for a moment. But don't stop looking for the next door. Because every time he shuts one, he's going to open one. And finally, remember this. Remember hope lives in the redeemer of your soul not the resolution in your situation. God doesn't have to fix my problems. He already took care of my biggest one. God doesn't promise me endless happiness and immense opportunities and wonderful success. In fact, church family, I'm not being honest with you if I don't tell you, he promises the opposite at times. Now the blessings are so great. He doesn't have to reopen that door. He doesn't have to give birth to that dream or that opportunity. He's already rescued you from a slave master of sin and given you hope in his son. And knowing Jesus is greater than walking through any open door that you may have dreamt about in your life. So I don't know who this message is for this morning, but somebody's had a door slammed in their face or are you a little bitter over a previous moment when it was? And if you haven't, I love you enough to tell you it's coming. And when it comes, find chapter 5 and see that God is always working and moving, even when the door slams.